Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. We've been building on this theme. Al has been going um, hammer and tongs um, since the new year uh, on the whole theme of revival, sensing God wanting to do something again around this key verse. Heard of your fame, standing there, all of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. What a cry. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath, remember mercy. And there's something about a hunger of, of God that's around, <clears throat> even traveling a little bit, connecting with other churches. There is such a hunger for God. There's a hunger, and there's a thirst, and there's a sense of shift. There's a sense of something moving. There's something moving in the spiritual atmosphere. God is at work, and so um, and we're excited about that. I want to tell you a little story First, and then I want to get into looking at a couple of realities, and then we're going to pray and worship together. You all know that I'm pretty kin to ships and boats, and uh, some of the older people in here, sorry to say that, but some of the older people in here will remember this one. She's a Princess Victoria. She was made in 1947 um, and sank in 1953, <laughs> only six years old, and um, she was uh, built, as I said, as a passenger. Uh, she did two trips a day from Lauren to Stranraer, and um, that was her job. She was um, captained by a guy called James Ferguson. He was 55 years of age. And on the 31st of January, 1953, um, she left Stranraer at 7.45 in the morning. There was a gale force warning in, in action, but um, with only 44 tons of cargo on, not a great load, um, but with 128 passengers and 51 crew, she set out um, for Larne. Only 47 of that total would make it. 133 people would lose their lives on that fateful journey. Um, um, she, she, she come up out of Loch Ryan, um, you can see Loch Ryan there. Loch Ryan's a little enclosure down into Stranraer, and it's pretty sheltered, and so he wasn't getting the full force of the north wind. The wind was coming out of the north, and he made the decision to, to, to sail. And when he came out of Stranraer, out of Loch Ryan, and he turned to head for Larne, he, the back end of the boat, she was roll on, roll off, so the furry doors started to get the full force of the north wind. Uh, the problem was the uh, roll-on, roll-off doors were just doors that slid across, um, and they weren't, they weren't full up to the top, and so the spray could come over the top of them. The sad thing about it is they had, on, on, on this boat, she was one of the first ones made with what was called a guillotine door, and so this was a safety door. It was a storm door, and this door would just do what what it says, a guillotine, it would just come right down. The thing is, they never used it because it was too laborious. It took a load of time to lower, it took a bit of effort and time to raise it, and unfortunately, on this day, on this day, they didn't use it, and um, she sank just um, the proximate siding, there's a little um, red blob in the middle, just about five miles um, north, northeast 
of the Copeland Islands, and she lay there in 90 meters of water till 1992. There's a guy called Mackenzie, John Mackenzie, sent a diving team and found her on the bottom there, funded by the, the BBC. What's the moral of the story? Well, 133 people would lose their lives because a door wasn't shut properly. 133 people would lose their life just because a door wasn't shut properly. And for us at the present, I think it is so important that God wants to open a door. There's no doubt about that. There's a door of salvation. There's a door of revival. There's a door of church renewal opening to the church across the nation and across the world today. So it's really important as that door opens that we make sure some other doors are shut. And it's really important to understand this. So um, I'm, I'm going to jump into a passage that's on the screen in Exodus 17. It's not hard for me to go back to Moses. So um, bear with me as I read it to you. Um, it's in two uh, screens, so let's, let, let's read it. The context of the story is this. is Exodus 17. The children of Israel have just literally left Egypt. They've been in bondage for a long, long time. And um, as they've left um, Egypt, they haven't left Egypt in a great way. The 10 plagues have just um, hit. I haven't time to talk about that tonight, but the 10 plagues have just hit with the last one um, ripping Egypt of every firstborn child. And so the, the Egyptians hate these people. And so they hate them so much that they load them up with gold. They said, get out. Get out of our land. And they load them up with gold and silver. And so they head out loaded with, with riches. The problem was um, that someone else knew they'd left with these riches. So let's see what the journey gives as we read it. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses and Aaron and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. Wonder when they figured this out or where Moses was going. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. Whenever he dropped his hands, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron, found, Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on, and they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands, so his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in a battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. And he said they've raised a fist. Dangerous thing to do, isn't it? They've raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war um, with Amalek generation after generation. You need to know tonight as we <clears throat> chat about this that every time you step into something new for the kingdom of God, you shake the kingdom of darkness. Every time you step into something new for the kingdom of God, you shake the kingdom of darkness. And uh, it's a bit like a football match. Not that I know an awful lot about football, but um, when, when, as soon as the whistle goes, as soon as the, the ball is kicked off, there's an opponent. That's the thing. As soon as it goes, there's an opponent comes to fight. And so when hell begins to shake, it can feel a little bit like heaven actually is slipping further away and instead of coming close. And so we need to learn how to fight 
in the opposite spirit, all right? Instead of always fighting the things that we have the divine right to inherit, which the enemy will always keep us really occupied for. So what I want to talk to you about a little bit tonight is the strategy of fight. The strategy of fight. Because we've got to understand how to fight. If we're going to, because this is how we fight our battles, all right? And I think one of the things that I've realized is that the enemy loves us to fight all the things that we don't need to fight for. The enemy loves us to keep fighting for all the stuff that actually we're supposed to inherit. (laughs) He likes us to fight for all the stuff that Jesus has already died for and got victory over. And as an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, these are mine, these are your things, but the enemy will have us fight for them. He'll have us fight over addiction. He'll have us to fight over our discouragement and depression. He'll have us to fight over everything there is going. And so we need to learn how to fight for our purity. We need to learn how to fight for our purity, and that might mean not watching some stuff. We need to learn how to fight for our holiness, and that might mean not doing some stuff. We need to fight for justice. That might mean speaking up for someone who doesn't have a voice. We have to fight for righteousness. That means just seeking first the kingdom of God, according to Matthew 6, 33. And so it's really important. And so when when these people left um, Egypt, not only had heaven heard them, but hell had heard them. Not only had heaven heard them, but the, 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 the tribe of Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau, had heard that these guys are coming out, and they're wealthy, and they've got riches, and they're loaded, and I'd like some of that. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? They're coming out celebrating their freedom. Let's bind this freedom, and let's cut it off pretty quickly. And so what happens is, what happens is when you come out of bondage, the enemy stirs hell against you to rob that from you, and the warning is you can be caught off guard. And the Amalekites want to rob you of freedom and promise. And Satan, hear me in this, has no new tricks in his book. He's still playing the same old cards. He's still doing the same old stuff. And as soon as you feel victory, he will rise up against you. And he will keep you fighting the wrong battle. He will keep you inactive from fullness of God or living full in the spirit. Again, I say he'll just keep you fighting for the things that you're actually that's already been defeated and won at the cross. That's the problem with the church today. And one of the reasons, see, these are the things that actually the fruit of the Spirit are supposed to make evident in our lives. Like one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And we're so busy fighting the things that come against our self-control instead of actually walking into the blessings of God and understanding that those nine fruit of the Spirit are something to be cherished and ordained and work. They're a, pro, they're a process and a, a progress of work in the believer's life. And one of the reasons that I think that this is so dangerous is that we, if we start to underestimate the power of sin, hear me in this, Christian friends, tonight, if you start to underestimate the power of sin, which will destroy, um, you will leave a door open. And when you leave a door open, you will sink. You will sink. And you'll just live a life of sinking. You'll just live a life of 
Always going down, always going down, always trying to fight because you've missed the strategy of fight, that the strategy of fight is to actually know what we're fighting for. And so I think this is really important. And so one of the Amalekites that I think has become an enemy to the church, one of the Amalekites that actually realizes something's happening in the church today, one of the Amalekites that modern-day Amalekites is coming against us, I think, is this Amalekite of unbelief. And, um, and, and, and remember that the enemy has a strategy as well. He will refine and he will define that unbelief to suit your character. Like, for instance, he, he's probably not going to tell too many of you not to believe in God. He's smarter than that. He knows you believe in God. He knows that no matter what happens, you're probably gonna, your faith is probably going to go along okay. But he, that might be the strategy for some, but not for most of you. I, I, it's just more subtle than that. And so tonight I'm going to suggest some areas of unbelief that I feel could hinder the next wave of the Holy Spirit. I feel that could hinder this wee land um, from really celebrating revival the way it should. You understand, in, in, the, in, in Joshua's battle, you had the sword. Joshua fought with the sword, which is the word, the sword on the field, and Moses fought with worship on the hilltop. There's something about getting into the word and raising our hands in worship. There's something about worship and prayer and the word that I think will bring a fresh revival into this land, all right? I don't think we can actually shortchange any of them. I think they're all vitally important. Worship, prayer, intercession, and the Word. And so what I'm going to talk tonight about is just three areas of unbelief. I think the first one, the first area of unbelief is, is unbelief in the authority that you've been given. When Jesus commissioned the, the faltering and failing followers just before He goes back to heaven, and He gives them that great commission in Matthew 28, and he says, go into all the world. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, go you. He says, go you and, and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I love that because we're lost without that last line. We are lost without that last line, the fact that he's going to be with us. Now, he did this. Listen to me. He said this on the basis of the absolute authority that he was giving that these people were well able to carry out this superhuman task. Let me say that again. He gave the Great Commission on the basis of the absolute authority that he was giving that these people we're well able to carry out this superhuman task. So Jesus never doubted them, nor does he doubt us. <laughs> we doubt him. He never doubts us. He knows that we are well able to bring revival to this land. He knows it. He knows it. The problem is the enemy has sowed in unbelief, and we've stopped actually believing it the way we really should. Remember in the story of Elijah and um, the... Hey, the, the, the guys are coming to, to, to bring him into captivity, to kill him, and his servant is, is, comes running in and says, the armies are all around, they're about to get us, and, and he says, chill out, go get a bucket of coal, you're all right, son. And, um, 
And he said, but you got to see the armies out here. And then he prays this prayer, and he says, open the eyes of my servant. And the, the, the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw, listen to me, what was already there. It just didn't appear. It just didn't come for him to see. They were there. He just, unbelief had blinded him. And so, there's, there, as we prayed in this room on Tuesday nights, 10 to midnight, on the bye week of the prayer meeting, over the last year or so, we have, we have prayed for angelic visitation, and we have sensed angels in this room. We have sensed them and felt them, and we have felt this word unbelief. We've felt the very thing that we're praying for oftentimes is here. Just our unbelief and our human vision and our inability to see them holds us back. And so there's something about that. And, and, and when you go to Mark's little epistle here, you'll find that Mark actually gives us an explanation of what that power looks like. So Mark's explanation of the Great Commission actually is what the power really means. You can see here four things really quickly. You can see um, that, that he's saying it gives us power over the, the spiritual kingdom. He's saying whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So he's given us power over this spiritual kingdom. He's given us power over the satanic kingdom. They will, listen, look at what it says, they will drive out demons. He says they, he, he gives us power actually over the natural kingdom. Look at this. Pick up snakes. Drink deadly poison. What's that all about? Power over the natural kingdom. And then lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Power over the human kingdom. That's, this is incredible power. And this is the stuff that's given to the church. And so there's something about this. Now I know some modern-day theologians will try to rob that and say that the Mark account wasn't in the original, the original manuscript. And my argument against that is you just got to read the book of, the act, book of Acts and you see all this stuff in action. So whether it is or whether it wasn't, I don't really know. I'm not a theologian. But here, here just, just read the book of Acts and you see all this stuff in action, all right? So this demonstrates the power that was given to Jesus who in turn would delegate it to the church. What power? That's pretty incredible. And so, number one, unbelief in the authority you've been given. Number two is uh, unbelief in what your mandate really is. What, what, what is. what was this authority given to do? What is the mandate of the church? Well, Jesus said, first and foremost, go. Mark said, go and preach. Matthew said, go and teach. All right? There's something. And the thought is not just about getting people saved how much and exciting that is, God is not interested in having a bunch of spiritual babies, although we almost begin there, I understand that, but he's not wanting a bunch of people who spend their lives backsliding and rededicating themselves. He wants disciples. He wants people who are willing to lay down their lives, people who are willing to count the cost. This is why you should never shortchange the gospel story. Jesus never did it. He never did it. There was always a... a a call to count the cost. And look four, he actually, Jesus says this, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's what he says. And then he uses the explanation. He says, who in the wide world would ever go and build a tower without first counting the cost in case everybody said, well, started to build and he had enough money to finish it. Or what, he said, what king would go to war with 10,000 people knowing there was 20,000 coming against him without thinking out a strategy of that? talks about this. He says, he says who, 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 likewise, whoever does not forsake all, 
Luke 4, 33, they cannot be my disciples. This is why the Great Commission told us to teach, to baptize, to instruct all nations. Why? Because God wants a glorious church. Ephesians 4. He wants a glorious church. Ephesians 4, 13, I think it is. And Jesus promised us, he said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. And again, I say, apart from that, we don't have a chance. And the writer of the Hebrews in 13, 6 put it this way. He said, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do unto me. I love that. There's something. So number one, unbelief in the authority have been given. Number two, in what your mandate really is. And number three, in who you really are as a church. I think sometimes we just forget. We forget who we are. Do you know that I did a little study of this in the last couple of years, and I found 70 names referring to both Israel and the church in the Bible, around 70, a wee bit more, around 70 names of of. And, and I started to say, God, why, why 70 names? Why would this be the case? And I think the only thing that I could come up with is that all the names gives us different facets and aspects of truth concerning His infinite reality. Every one of them. And each, ad, each name adds to the total concept and folds, but another layer of truth. And you think you've just read something, then you read again. And this incredible body of people that, that God calls a church. And maybe, maybe God just knew we would struggle with unbelief. And so he gives us all of these names. Now, I put a few of them on the screen to help us tonight because I hope this is, en- this is encouraging for you when we start to reckon who we are in Christ. Well, number one, we're called his body. I love that, his body. Christ is the head of the church as he gives direction, just as everything comes from our brain, from our mind. It says, and God placed all things under his feet. The next time you're struggling with something, Remember, remember, he's the head of the church, and God placed all things were under his feet. They're under his feet. And all, somebody told me years ago, all in the Greek means all. All right? And, and he's appointed him to be the head over everything for his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there's something beautiful about his body. Here's another one of it encourages a holy temple. Christ, the master builder who's building a temple for his habitation. I love this. It says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. Is this encouraging or what? And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's pretty cool. Like if that doesn't excite you, that we actually become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit himself. Al was talking about this last week about our love and our, our, our belief and, and our, our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Not a net, but a person, this person of the Holy Spirit. There's more. Like Jimmy Cricket, there's more. Um, um, a spiritual house This house is not made just like an ordinary building with ordinary materials, but rather a spiritual house held together by the bonds of covenant and love, but as Christ as a son over his own house. Look at this. 
It says, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. This is so, so good. All right? They say self-praise is no praise at all, but there you go. Um, a holy nation, a people of God, a peculiar people, the authorized version says. Now, you could look at the person beside you and say, that was spot on, all right? A peculiar people, a group of people set apart to do the will of God, a people who know that they've bought with a price and they're not their own, but you are a chosen generation. This is the Bible. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Don't let the father of lies lie to you anymore about who you are. You are his special people, his special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church needs to stop living in darkness. The church needs to stop living in darkness. We need to rise up and claim who we are. We need to inherit the riches of Christ that have been bought with the price of his own precious blood and live as sons and daughters of the king and see revival sweep into our land once again. Will you read this one? I love this one. Church of the Firstborn. This is a group that, that in Christ we can lay hold of all the riches of inheritance and function in God. <laughs> now, I have just a couple of verses up here, but let me read you the context of this, all right? Let me read you. Don't, don't read it for a minute. Let me read you, and then I'll tell you when I'm going to read that, all right? Because I'm going to read a few verses preluded to it, all right? Because what, what the writer of Hebrews, whenever you come to the book of Hebrews, you need to always remember the one little key word is the word better. It's the book of better things. It's a better covenant built upon better promises. All right? So it's, that, that's a key word, and you underline all that and highlight that in your Bible as you read it. And so the writer to Hebrews is, is going back to Mount Sinai. Do you remember when Moses went to Mount Sinai and he was going to bring the people all up to worship God and then the, the, the smoke came down and the fire came down and the mountain began to tremble and then God had to say, go down, Moses, go down and tell the people not to come. Tell the people that they're not ready to come. Tell the people not to break through the ranks. Tell them not even to let their dog or their cat or their cow touch the mountain because if you do, it'll have to be killed. That was the holiness of God. Now listen to what the writer to Hebrews says. For you have not not come to the mountain, not reading this yet now, don't read that on me, all right? For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest, uh, tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They're saying, don't speak to us anymore, God, because we can't stand in your holiness and we feel like we're just going to burn up. We're going to explode if you speak to us anymore. He says, for they could not endure what was commanded so much so that even if a beast touched the mountain, it would need it to be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was this sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But, got to love a but, haven't you? He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. I don't know where you're registered today, whether you're in Brexit or out of Brexit, or I don't know what, what's going on with all that stuff, but I can tell you this, if you're born again tonight, you're registered in heaven, registered in heaven. 
into the church of the firstborn, into the general assembly of the saints. That's pretty cool stuff. He says this, he says, there's something about this in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And the last one, you're probably all glad I didn't do the 70, but um, maybe next time, children of God. This is one of my favorites because when I was a boy, I got saved when I was young, I got saved when I was just six, and uh, I fell in love with God from I was a child, and uh, I fell in love with His Word when I couldn't read, and uh, and uh, I remember thinking when I was a kid, I wish I could invent a system where everybody could understand the love that I've just felt for this God. I wish I could. I wish I could invent a system where everybody in the world could be loved. And in one of my reads through the Bible, I came in this verse without anybody pointing it to me. But as a boy, I read this for the first time. And I still remember the first time I read this. It says it in the authorized version. It says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And I love the way the NIV adds a little bit at the end. And that is what we are. Oh, the enemy's a snake. He's robbed us with his own belief. He's got us fighting all the wrong battles. He's got us, he's got us fighting all the wrong stuff. Got, we're fighting all the stuff that Jesus already died for. And if we just exercise the fruit of the Spirit in our lives in Galatians 5, we, 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 we wouldn't have to fight those battles because the fruit of the Spirit becoming evident in our lives would have done it all for us. And then we could fight the things that we're really supposed to fight for. Fight for our holiness. Fight for our purity. Fight for our righteousness. Fight for justice in our land. Fight for revival. Come and lie on our face because we wouldn't have to then think, Lord, help me. Lord, protect me. And I know there's those times that are just our shopping list. Lord, my world's falling apart and blah, blah, blah. I understand all that. I've been there too. But there's something about where we come to a point where we can say, God, will you come? God, will you come? And we take the sword in our hand like Joshua in the field and we raise our hands like Moses on the hill and we realize this is how we fight our battles. This is how we fight our battles. We don't have to fight the old things of old and we don't have to fight our fellow brothers and sisters. We actually start to fight for the reality of what God wants, the right to inherit all the riches of Christ. You were born to worship, my friend. You were born to worship. You were born to live in this word. This word is for you. This word is a guide to your life. It's a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. This, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And if you live it and you start getting it into your life, something will happen. And the problem with the enemy is, here's the problem. Here's one of the things I found. One of his greatest tools is not, is not as much division as it's diversion. I, I, I found this lately. And I see it all over the place. His biggest tool isn't as much division as it is diversion. And what he does, he's sneaky. He takes our addictive natures. Because we're all addictive. We're all addictive to something. All right? And he takes our addictive natures and he diverts the passion. That's what he does. And so instead of reaching for a Bible, we reach for a glass of wine. Instead of reaching for the prayer, we reach for a pill. Instead of going to the prayer meeting, we go to the gym. 
I have no problem going to the gym. Some of you are probably looking and saying, Phil, it wouldn't do you any harm to go. But um, like for dear sex, you were fit two years ago. Now it's just about identity. And if it becomes something, you know, like there's, there's, something about, there's something about understanding that the enemy is trying to divert us. He's just trying to divert us with all this stuff. And he's taking what's naturally addictive in our lives, the good stuff. Because here's the thing, most of our idols are just a good thing that has become the ultimate thing. Most of our idols are just a good thing that have become an ultimate thing. And that's what happens. And so I love, I love this because when you lift your hands, the Amalekite of unbelief gets, gets defeated. Desi's sitting down there. And Desi and Henry are good friends of mine. And they have a little thing they always say to me. They always say to me, Phil, raise your hands. Raise your hands. Raise your hands. They say that to me all the time whenever I'm praying for something. Just get your hands up. Just get your hands up. There's something about raising your hands. There's something about setting yourself free in worship. There's something about allowing the Word to come in. And here's the thing, and then we're going to worship. Here's the thing. When, 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 when you read the difference between... Ephesians is one of my favorite books, one of my loads of favorite books, but it's one of my favorite, favorite books. And when you read the difference from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 2, you'll find in Ephesians 1, it tells you all the things that Christ has. It's, it tells you everything about Christ. It says that He is the... He is the be-all and end-all of everything about us. And then when you, when you turn in your Bible um, to Ephesians 2, here's what happens. As soon as you go into Ephesians 2, he, it, it, it starts with a but. It was in my Bible earlier. Uh, yeah, here. Here we go. <laughs> Once you were dead in sins, but because of your disobedience and because of your many sins, you lived like the rest of the world. But here he's given this spirit of work. He says, but now you who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes through a whole list of all the things that you inherit as a child of God. He's saying, Ephesians 1, all belongs to Jesus. Ephesians 2, all belongs to you. What belongs to him belongs to you. And, and, and maybe the, the guys want to come up and lead us in worship as we finish off. But let me, let me say one wee thing as I finish. I told you this story before about a friend who lost his leg in a really bad accident. And he lost his leg right up to the very, right, right up to the very top, so he had no stump. And so they really struggled with an artificial limb for him because they didn't have a stump. The, usually the stumps go on, or the artificial limb goes on by suction. But he had, because of the seriousness of this accident, this um, couldn't happen. And so they had to do all kinds of straps and all, um, that, that. And so because of that, he, 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 he could never really walk without a really severe limp. And so his, the, the best, they give him this leg that sort of had an automatic swing in the knee, he kept falling over with that. And then eventually he found that the one that was just static all the time, so he would walk like this. And he would walk around with, and learn to walk really well, but he would have that limp. And then he said a peculiar thing. He said that uh, what happened when his kids were born, um, his little boy, one day, his wife says to him, have you noticed how so-and-so was walking? And his little boy was walking with a limp. <laughs> and so they had to say, no, 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 you don't walk like daddy. You don't need to walk like daddy. You need to walk normal. 
and they had a bit of a job trying to teach him because you see he'd modeled himself on the person he was watching all the time and one of the things about the church today is I find that they they're watching too many wrong models and um, they're they end up walk, just walking with a limp because you just model them what somebody else is doing. But all of this tonight is telling us that we model ourselves in this. We don't model ourselves in this. We model ourselves in this. We're children of the Most High God and we need to walk into our inheritance. And maybe tonight what we need to do as we worship, maybe we need to just corporately repent of unbelief. I'd love to lead that as the father of this house is uh, to say that I'm guilty of it too. Guilty of it all through my life of not understanding the power that was at our disposal, not understanding our mandate, not understanding the authority that we had, not understanding who we really were in Christ. And so, Father, I just pray tonight and I repent on, on my behalf and on behalf of this house corporately of unbelief in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would give us a fresh vision of Christ. I pray, God, tonight that you would give us a fresh vision of heaven. And I pray tonight, God, that you would release us into the riches of Christ that are at our disposal. I pray, God, that we will walk into the things that heaven has to offer. I pray, God, that you would forgive us tonight for fighting all the wrong battles and all the wrong people and just getting into confusion. I pray, God, that you would would forgive us tonight for fighting the things that Jesus died for and paid the price for and defeated 2,000 years ago. But we've lived under their domain because of a lie of the enemy. Lord, may your church rise with backbone. May your church rise with a fresh stamina. May your church rise with a fresh identity of who they are in Christ. May the church rise in this place, in Emmanuel, Lurgan, Portadown, in Shalom, and in Cara. God, may we rise with a fresh mantle, O God, knowing who we are and what we're called to do, to go and tell the good news to every single person. And God, would you sweep this town, would you sweep this city of every dark domain of the enemy, every curse, O God, that the enemy has placed on this town and this city. Lord, we break it tonight in the name of Jesus, and we declare tonight that the church shall rise in power, and the church shall rise in the glorious way that it's meant to be, without spot and without wrinkle. And we'll realize, O God, that this is your day, and this is your time. And the enemy has no part of it. May that be the place in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.